Hey friends, welcome back to the Collective's Conversations podcast. It's Jeff, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. It is my friend Natalie Runyon, also known as Raised to Stay on social media. She shares those little black boxes that kind of challenge all of us with some um, interesting and challenging commentary on church and church culture. We talk about how we grew up in a Pentecostal charismatic setting and how that shaped us in good ways and in bad ways, how we faced some church hurt and how we've stayed in spite of it. We have a great conversation just about church and church culture and some things we're seeing in the future. This is one I think you're going to love. So make sure maybe you get uh, your notepad out, take some notes. It's going to be a great conversation. And now let's get to our conversation with our friend Natalie. Friends, welcome back to the Collectus Conversations podcast. I have my friend Natalie Runyon with us today. She's the founder of those little black boxes you see all over Instagram being shared on everybody's story. Um, the founder of Raise to Stay, a ministry for those serving in the local church. She was formerly on staff at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. She's a worship leader, songwriter, sought-after speaker, and one of the most interesting individuals you'll ever talk to like we we always have a great conversation when we sit down natalie welcome to the show thank you so much for having me it's so good to talk to you again i say again because you were on the previous podcast i had with my friend rob fultz but we've also had some instagram kind of dm conversations it's been fun to watch you kind of go from really when we first talked you were just sort of talking about getting the book off the ground raised this day and now you're getting ready to release the second book we'll talk about that but the biggest news in your family's life is you've moved to what's sort of southeast sort of midwest you guys are in kentucky how is how's life different in kentucky from colorado well, you know, we're from northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area. My husband and I are. So for us, it feels like we're back home. Um, it's it's Bible Belt feelish. You know, we're, yeah. we're both church kids. Um, we're back in churches that we grew up in our whole lives. So now it's really just kind of our kids acclimated to not living in the mountains, not, um, you know, being in snow all the time. Our youngest is used to going outside and being in, you know, 12 to 15 inches of snow and, and here it's not quite as exciting and as eventful, but we're with family. So being back with family, being back with people that we've known our whole lives has been such a gift. Good. I remember we were talking before we recorded, I was in Lexington for about seven years. Um, and I had come from the Midwest, Illinois, where we got snow, like inches and inches of snow. And there was one Monday or Tuesday, I think we got enough for the grass to be covered. So I thought nothing of it. I drove my kids to school and there's nobody there. I didn't think <laughs> to check the news. Like, and I had to go back home, drop them off and then go back into to work. And I was like, you guys canceled for this. But um, in the South and now I'm here in Southeast Tennessee, if they, if they talk about snow, they cancel school here. So it's a beautiful thing. So I, I have to know you're back in the Cincinnati area. There's a lot of divisive conversation around this. Are you pro or anti Skyline Chili? We are a big Skyline fan. Yeah, we, we eat a lot of Skyline chili. <laughs> that feels like, when you say Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati, man, people like, they jump right to that Skyline conversation, so. Yeah, um, it's, um, it's actually probably a weekly, a weekly staple in our, in our diet, so that may be for or against us, I'm not sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. We'll let our listeners decide on that. Um, my dad actually lives, and this is a totally side conversation, just outside of Cincinnati in the Milford area on the north end. So, so we've had our fair share of Skyline chili over the years. So 
Um, <laughs> let's talk about Raise to Stay. Now, it's it's your new, new lady, your latest book. You are writing a new one, but it's been sort of this identity and brand that you've created. Um, it was probably about a year and a half ago that I started seeing the little black boxes pop up. Had no idea who you were, but knew you were saying things that resonated with me. Tell us sort of why and how Raised to Stay got started. Well, I grew up in the Church of God, which is how you and I also have another connection. I grew up in the Church of God, Lee yeah. University um, denomination, and I love the church. It's been part of my life. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's been part of my life since I was a little girl. And so when I started going into my own ministry as an adult, I started seeing things that really were discouraging on some levels. I um, was walking out church hurt again. I mean, I had walked it out as a child. I'm walking it out now as an adult. And I had a moment where I just thought, you know what? 20 years of being a pastor's kid, 20 years of being in full-time ministry, I'd like to quit if I'm honest. Like I'd like to just go be a Starbucks barista and just do something totally different. And it was on this day with the Lord that I was just saying, Hey, if it's okay with you, I'd like to be done. And the Lord in that moment gave me this like brainchild of raised to stay. I remember hearing the phrase kind of in my spirit and not knowing what it was, but I ran home and I started Googling to see if anything called raised to stay existed and nothing did. Mm-hmm. And that day I wrote my first black box with white writing that basically said the church did not hurt you. A few pe- broken people did. Don't give up. You were raised to stay. And I put that on my social media. And that was this moment where I had like 200 people in my personal account. And I started getting these DMs like, thanks for saying that. It was being shared. And so every day I wrote a black box with white writing, just trying to convince myself not to quit. And that's really how it all began was just me trying to tell myself, hey, hold on. Yeah. I remember seeing it. I think I saw it first. Maybe Alex Seeley or somebody shared it. And um, and I was like, and, and at the other time I was doing podcasts, and I was like, we have to have this conversation. And then we talked about the, the Church of God connection. Um you were supposed to come here in 1998. I came here in 1998. I, they call that a near miss, but I feel like it's more like a near almost didn't happen type thing. Um, and I, I come from sort of that same, I don't want, there wasn't a lot of church hurt in church of God, but there was a lot of things that looking back, I go, I didn't quite understand or agree with. Um, how much of that has kind of, not just the church of God conversation, but just the experience of growing up in something that was kind of legalistic, but had this sort of spiritual freedom, this sort of almost tension I felt like we grew up in. How much of that shaped this conversation? It's been bitter and beautiful at the same time because growing up in a denomination that was so tight-knit, so close, was a gift. I mean, I think back to high school and some of my favorite memories were with the Church of God, with my friends at church camp, experiencing the Holy Spirit. There, you're right. There was freedom in some ways, and then there was a lot of religion in a lot of ways. And I, I think I had to um, detangle a little bit from some of the things that were put on me, not necessarily by God, but by the people that I had gone to church with. And mm-hmm. we know that when you are in a church family— they become almost like your biological family. I mean, we were with our church family 
probably more than we were with our extended family. And so really with this conversation of raised to stay, it's taking the best of what I can remember of growing up in the charismatic Pentecostal church of God and also saying, okay, it was really, really good. But then there were also some things that caused some of our friends to walk away. And I want to have that conversation. I want to make sure that we are opening up that dialogue for some of our peers who didn't stay um, in the church or in relationship with Jesus so that we can welcome them back when they're ready, but having the honest, but also honoring conversation. Yeah. Rachel, my wife and I, we, I think we, we resonate so well with you because we've sit down and have these conversations ourselves. We have several friends who we went to Lee with, uh, Rachel and I were Lee at the same time, who were zealous believers, part of that sort of charismatic Pentecostal tribe, who have now, for lack of a better term, and I don't love the term, deconstructed, um, walked away from faith, believing all sorts of things. It's heartbreaking for us. Um, How did you avoid going that pathway? How did you walk this church hurt pathway, which a lot of people are, and there's a lot of hurt, and not walk completely away from faith? I'll be honest. I think that for me, going to Miami of Ohio and getting involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, but having a Jewish roommate and being in a major with atheists and having to fight for my faith in a way that I had never had to fight for it before could have saved my relationship with Jesus because it made me have to dig deeper into the word. It made me go back to the root of what I said yes to, not a denomination, not a church, but back to Jesus. My core belief in, do I believe in Jesus Christ? Do I believe that he saved me? Do I believe that there is salvation and that God loves me. And I had to go back to those kind of Sunday school basics while I'm in this university where every day I'm being confronted and I'm being made fun of and I'm being challenged um, by people who don't believe like me and think that what I believe is crazy. And so I spent five years at Miami of Ohio fighting for my faith. Hmm. And, you know, that is something that I think a lot of us church kids who did end up going to Christian college and seminary, we didn't really have to fight too much for our faith um, on college campuses. Maybe we did once we left that college campus environment or with our friends that were in that deconstruction. But I think for me, it was more of a detangling of some of the religion that I was able Mm -hmm. to do without fully leaving Jesus. Yeah. I had sort of the both and experience. So I went to state school for two years, went to Illinois State. It was there that sort of I had a a recommitment experience through Chi Alpha, which is the Assembly of God College Expression on campus, Um, then transferred to Lee. And I remember getting to Lee University just full of zeal, full of like passion for the Lord and being on this Christian campus and going like, why is nobody else this way? It was this really weird... um, I mean, there was some students. I don't want to say there wasn't. I got some great friends who love the Lord, serving the Lord. But it was like almost this muted faith expression sometimes um, that was sort of just what we did. Um, where I had had the college experience and, and the both and had some some sinful life and then came to Christ and had that sort of uh, not really persecution, but a lot of questioning of like, what are you doing, Jeff? Like, this is so different. And the challenges of that, and I think you're right, that does shape some things in you when you have to, 
stand up for your faith, stand up for yourself, um, stand up for what you believe. You actually have to begin to know what you believe because you're in these environments that are asking really tough questions and really good questions. And so I think when we talk about deconstruction and those that might be leaving, do you think some of it is that they weren't prepared to answer the questions? It's true. And I also think that for people who are listening to this who are scared of deconstruction, mm. I just want to remind us that deconstruction is not deconversion. That if somebody is asking hard questions and deconstructing their faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are deconverting or they're walking away from Jesus altogether, though there is a risk of that if we don't have the proper community around us to help us dissect some of the stuff that we are wrestling with. And so, you know, I think that deconstruction can be healthy if you have the right frameworks in place to be able to rebuild something that's stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think for you and I, we were able to rebuild something and it wasn't easy and it wasn't something that maybe we'd wish on anybody else, but we are still here because for whatever reason, we had a framework or a foundation that is Jesus that kept right. us holding on even when we could have easily walked away. And I think a lot of our friends who have walked away have had good reasons. I mean, there are some who walked through divorce and the yeah. church rejected them because they got divorced. Mm -hmm. Or we have friends that struggled with their identity and now they're being rejected rather than being welcomed in. And so we can't blame some people for saying, I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because they had their hearts broken. Mm -hmm. And so I believe now we can help people rebuild, but we have to become ready receivers of the broken in our churches now for those who have deconstructed and looking for home again. Yeah. So that day, let's go back to the day you're walking and you, because I think all of us who've been in ministry have had that day and we're like, I quit. I mean, I think most pastors once a week probably quit. Like, to be honest, like we just like Monday, I'm done. Um, why did you not quit? Other than the voice of the Lord, like, other than God said, raise to say, why did Natalie not quit that day? It's funny. I mean, I think through my entire life with the Lord and when I remove people, when I remove mm. being a pastor's kid, when I remove the situations and circumstances, the thing I kept going back to was that God had never failed me. He had never failed me ever in my life. And even when there were days that I said, I'm done. I don't even know if I want to be a Christian. I don't even know if I want to be part of what's happening. Every time I would go into that place where that enemy lie was so loud, I couldn't escape the thing that I knew to be true. And it's that God had never failed me. Had I been disappointed? Yes. Had I been through hard times? Yes. But my core foundational truth was Jesus Christ. I did have this, this uh, I will not be moved type of mentality. When we look at the word radical and we talk about a radical remnant that's going to rise up in these last, day, these last days, the same word, the root of radical is actually the word root. And it means that anything that is radical is rooted in a foundation that is so strong, it cannot be ripped up. And I believe that there is a radical remnant like myself that's rising up in these last days that have been so rooted in the truth of who God is that even when the storms of life come through and the enemy is trying to get us to deconstruct to the point of deconversion, there is still something in us 
that won't let us quit. And also there are people who won't let us quit. And that's what I talk about, the importance of good biblical community, a faith community mm-hmm. who can see us wrestling and not be scared of our questions, but help us answer them. And that's what I hope we can be to other people who are wrestling with their faith, that we can start being those listeners um, yeah. to not just question why they're questioning, but actually be the listeners that people were to us when we were having a hard season. Mm-hmm. So I completely agree. Um how did in this in this staying sort of idea that you stayed how and we have friends and i know people who because it's what they do because they still in a way believe they stay but they end up bitter about it how did you not become bitter even though you had some church hurt in staying it's funny because you know we talked about me turning in book two or writing book two and when i turned my edits into my editor at my publisher she called me and she said, Natalie, I like what you're saying, but I feel like you haven't fully healed yet. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that I am 44 years old and there are probably things that have happened to me throughout the course of my 44 years that as I've been writing these books in the community with Raised to Stay, doing these podcasts, some old wounds get reopened mm-hmm. and you don't realize it until you're in a meeting where you're having some sort of a trauma response or you're getting, you know, the text message that says we need to talk. And you realize that that's the kind of text message you used to get from your staff person who abused you or things like that. And so I don't know that it's not that I don't still struggle with some of those old wounds. I think what I have to do is when I start to feel that bitterness taking root again, is to go back to the scriptures, back into worship, back into those healthy relationships that I know are true. Um, And I will be, uh, you know, truthful. I I feel like when you've walked out church hurt, there's always a little bit of a scar there that still stings every now and then. And that's why I tell people don't rush your healing because Mm -hmm. God's not in a hurry with your healing. Um, But that it's okay if it's a lengthy process because church hurt is the worst kind of hurt. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so bad. I, I, um, mentioned scars. Um, I remember preaching a message when I was youth pastoring many years ago that I thought was really good. This one of those messages that stuck with me. Like I hope it stuck with the students. And it was a thought that wounds tell the story of our hurting, but scars tell the story of our healing, but there's still some scars in life that are still tender. I think sometimes. And when we get into these conversations, when we get into, uh, some of these things, there's still some spots that like when they hit, they still hurt. Um, I know there are some in my life that, that like, and there, like, there's some things I should let go and should probably let go of that I've processed through therapy, through whatever. And but I'm still, they're still kind of show up and I'm like, those are ugly and I don't like them, but they're still part of my story. And I don't think we can like throw away the story because it has shaped who we are. I don't think you get here in this platform um, with this book and the next book without the hurt. And I hate that because I I think we've all had to walk through some things to get to where we are to help some other people. But it's part of the story. And unfortunately, part of the story still sings. Um, And so I I think we have to kind of watch those scars and make sure they heal. I love what you're saying about taking time to heal. Um, So your editor sent the edits back and said, you got to take some more time to heal. What was that process like? 
I'm, I always say that Christians are the best at gaslighting ourselves <laughs> that we, you know, we could like look over like the course of our life and think, well, I just overreacted or that wasn't as bad as what I thought it was, but it is, it did hurt. It was hard. And for the last six months from the move, our family just made moving into a new home, releasing a book, publishing a book. I had to be very honest with myself in the last six months and say, I just came out of a really hard season. I'm going to honor the people that I served with. I'm going to honor the opportunity the Lord gave me, but I'm going to be honest that there were things that happened that were not okay. There were things that happened that did hurt me. And then confessing that out loud and saying it to someone and counseling has helped. And, um, you know, I've, I, I'm very open about mental health and anxiety and I have had to go to the doctor and say, I think I need some help here. Like I'm, I'm really struggling with some things that have happened and I can't sleep and I'm having a difficult time, you know, focusing. And I think that when we are honest and we say it out loud and we start putting other people in that journey with us, then it's less lonely. And so I've just had to rally my troops this past yeah. couple of months and, um, and just not gaslight myself into thinking that I was the problem or that, you know, it wasn't that bad when it, it was a hard season. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think from the background we come from, I, I remember, and it, it part of it was the time of the eighties and nineties we grew up in, um, mental health therapy, especially in the church was not accepted. Like unless you were crazy suicidal and I don't mean that lightly, but that was, that was the drawing line basically in the church and especially Pentecost expressions, we were just going to pray it out of you. And mental health was not a conversation. Um, and, and I remember carrying that with me into adult years going, if I go to therapy, I'm admitting something's wrong and there's a lot of shame attached to that. And it took getting to the place of going, hey, there's some things wrong to go to this, that conversation with somebody that really brought freedom both emotionally and spiritually I probably couldn't have obtained otherwise. Um, so how has that piece of the church hurt, especially those who are walking through it? Like, sure, we need to pray about it and you need community and things like that. But how has the mental health piece and the emotional health piece been a part of that journey for you? And how have you seen it play out for others? I feel like a lot of us felt isolated. Uh, we felt like if we were honest about what had really happened, that people would uh, try to fix it. They would, uh, or worse, they would just absolutely ignore it. And so I think a lot of people walked out abusive marriages. They walked mm -hmm. out um, mental health with anxiety and depression, suicidal thoughts. They did it alone. They They tried to get help. They tried to meet with a pastor and the pastors or the leaders just continue to say, stick it out. God's going to show up. And then when God didn't show up, when God didn't heal that marriage, when God didn't, you know, save their pastor from suicide, mm -hmm. whatever it was, then it's like, there's no help. There's no, there's nobody to help us. And so then I always say the world is a ready receiver of those the church rejects. And yeah. I think the mental health conversation has to be part of our ministries these days with all of the things we're seeing with our teens from transgender to social mm -hmm. media. I mean, there's so many things we cannot as the church make people feel like there is a problem with them if they can't just pray out 
you know, their depression or pray out their anxiety. And we can preach all the messages in the world, but if we're not equipping people and if we're not championing even the the doctors and the uh, psychologists and the people that God has called into the medical field to help support some of these things that we are going through, we're going to lose our people. We're going to lose people who are hurting because they're not going to trust us with their problems. And so I just, I think growing up in an environment where it was kind of taboo to say that you were, uh, hurting or that you were searching for something, it isolated a lot of people. And and Mm -hmm. right now that's the last thing we need is more isolation after what we've just walked out with COVID. Um, and so, yeah, I just always remind people that God is not in competition with our medication or our therapy. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering as, as, you know, my wife works here at the university. We have a lot of young adults in our church. Um, we have young adults in our house. Um, and therapy is critical. And I'm, I'm a pro-therapy person. Do you think a younger generation has swung almost too far the other way in that therapy? Like, I think therapy is great. And I don't want to miss that. But there's no balance between what we can get done in therapy and what God can do that there is a less of a dependence on the Lord in some regard? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like everything swung. I feel like the entire pendulum has swung on everything lately. Mm-hmm. And now it's all self-help. And it's, you know, I'm, I have my own truth. And this is what I believe. And, and so, yeah, there is this balance of, okay, the Word of God says to take captive every thought and to pull every high thing down. What we bind on earth, we bind in heaven. What we loose on earth, we loose in heaven. I mean, we, we know these scriptures. And I think the problem problem is, is that we are raising up a biblically illiterate generation. Um, You know, as much as you and I go back about our youth and what was kind of hard about it, there was a lot of really good stuff. I mean, we were taught the word of God. We, we knew the word of God. We sang it. We, we were just in it all the time. And now a lot of these churches aren't even preaching straight theology or word of God. A lot of it is more of the TED talks, more of the you know, a hero of our own story when it comes to scriptures. And so I'm just wondering if part of that problem with this generation coming up is that they just don't have Bible literacy and they don't know the power that they have through being a child of God because we haven't told them um, or they haven't been studying it for themselves. So I agree the pendulum has swung, not just on this conversation of of mental health, but on all levels of anything that kind of has to do with morals, with right. biblical integrity, with all of it. Well, it's and it's not just biblical literacy, which is a critical component. There seems to be a biblical familiarity, even like they don't know the basic Bible stories. Um, I was with a, a, a group of pastors um, in November, and pastor said to me he was preaching on David and Goliath, and he got to sort of, he wasn't preaching the whole of it, he's just a piece of it, and he goes, well, you know how the story ends, and he had a guy who had just gotten saved in his church come up at the end of church, and he goes, Pastor, what happened to that Goliath guy? Like, he didn't even know, like, in this, I mean, it's been common, like, sort of a, in our vernacular for this sort of, like, underdog thing, this David and Goliath, but we've moved even off of biblical familiarity, which, in some regards, is a great starting point, because now we can get the biblical truth into them, that's kind of unfiltered and without some of some of our own, own opinions built into it. But um, I think there's a huge gap there in this sort of biblical literacy, biblical familiar, familiarity conversation among generations that are coming up behind us where you and I grew up in church just being beat by the Bible 
and we had sword drills. I don't know if you remember those. Like you'd be like they, you'd have to open your Bible to the verse, and they give you a piece of candy. It was kind of like Pavlovian for us, but um, it was it, it's sort of this swing so far the other way. And I think part of that swing has been the celebrity culture of Christianity. You've been very outspoken about it um, in some regards, and and sort of pointing out some things that I I think we all see. Um, how how like talk to me about that what do you see there you're you're vantage point you're in green rooms i'm not in what are you seeing that is good and what are you seeing that that probably we should take note of there's always good and bad to everything that we do and and you know i think that when the celebrity culture thing came into play we all went to it like moths to a flame and i say all and that might not be true, but many of us who have a leadership gift, have a leadership mm-hmm. calling, teaching, singing, whatever, the celebrity culture is very real and it's addicting and it's hard not to get sucked into it. And so we did find very charismatic leaders. We did find people that could draw crowds and and musicians and worship leaders that could put out some of the best music that we've had. But what we lost in that was we lost sheep because what we forget is that sheep don't follow celebrities, sheep follow shepherds. Mm -hmm. And so when we started putting celebrities or performers in suits and calling them pastors, and then those pastors were building brands and building platforms and worship leaders were now artists and all of that, we lost a little bit of the safety for our sheep because now we're so busy with book deals and you know, who's going to put out the next album that the people in our congregations who are just desperate for leadership are being more told to buy books and leave reviews than they are, Hey, my office door is open. I, you have access to me anytime you need me. And maybe for you and I, part of the reason we were able to stick it out a little longer is because we had access to our pastors. We had access to the people that were leading us. And so celebrity culture is, I think, starting to dwindle down a little bit. I think as we're seeing people fall away, as we're seeing some of these scandals through hashtag church to unfortunate situations of leaders that are, you know, kind of falling from this star they were on. I think that this generation is looking more for authenticity, like, authentic leadership and shepherding mm-hmm. versus the celebrity. And and we, as our generation, we have to start modeling that now so that we can turn the tide a little bit. Yeah. I think authenticity is, is probably if there's a buzzword among a generation coming up that that's it. They want something that's real. They want something that's authentic and, and they can feel everybody performs for them. Like let's face it. My, my girls went to see Taylor Swift this summer like that is a, a performance and a production. The church cannot compete with that, nor is it built to. And so they have this capacity to go, that's Taylor Swift. But in real life, they want something real because everything is curated for them. Everything is an algorithm for them. So when we talk about the church, they really want something that's authentic, that's real, that's palpable, that they can almost touch. Um because it's in contrast to what the world is. I feel like the celebrity church culture was like, hey, the, tr- the world's doing really well. These things, let's see if we can mimic it or, or emulate it or create our version of it. Um, 
it's been my beef with Christian radio for a long time. Like it's just like two years after the world comes up with something, we're going to create a Christian version of it. So soccer moms can pay the bills. Like I, it's, I just think the world is in need of an authentic expression of God's move. Um, I was reflecting this morning that it was like 10, 11 months ago, we saw the move at Asbury. We had the prayer visual here at the university. There was this sort of unorchestrated move of God happening that a younger generation was gravitating towards. <coughs> How do we, as the church, get back to something that real and that authentic? I always say that, you know, revival, we grew up going to planned revivals, you know, they, they would schedule them every, every summer or whatever, but you know, some of the best revivals happened when we would be sitting around somebody's kitchen table and worship would start breaking out, you know, after dinner and we would stay till midnight singing or, or whatever. And I think we have to remember that revival doesn't have to be scheduled. It doesn't have to have a schedule, um, that has a planning center invite. It doesn't have to have, you know, a whole band, uh, revival can happen wherever people are hungry for the move of the Holy spirit. And I think we've lost a hunger. I think what we saw in Asbury was true hunger. You'll notice though, even at Asbury, that celebrity Christian celebrities were reaching out like, oh, I want to come help. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is we don't need the help. God doesn't need the help of any Christian celebrity or any worship leader or any speaker. God is fully capable of leading a revival. And the young people, those hungry for the Holy Spirit, are also very capable of ushering in revival by simply being available for the Holy Spirit to fall. That's how it happened in the upper room. And Acts was a promise of the Holy Spirit that was going to come and equip them to go and to do this mission that God had put in front of them that Jesus had mandated. And so I, I feel like revival is so close for us if we're a willing to receive the Holy Spirit and two willing to be on mission. And I think the church has lost part of wanting to be on mission. We've been so programmed to doing programs and to just, Mm. you know, chuck out this organization that we have forgotten to one, ask the Holy Spirit to be involved and two, what our initial mission is, which is to go and make disciples. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, Seeing the celebrity culture kind of vain, you were very outspoken um, about some things you saw at the Dove Awards. Um, And I'm not going to ask you to rehash that or bring any of that up. But anytime you're outspoken about anything that seems to be the norm, and there's always a cost involved in in sort of your outspokenness with sort of the church conversation, some of the celebrity culture conversation in Christianity, and just some of the things we all see but aren't saying anything about, what's been the cost that you've had to pay, Natalie? I think that the hard part is that I have people from both sides of this conversation coming at me on my Instagram. So I've got deconstruction people who don't like when I talk about coming back to the church. And I've got church people who don't like when I question some of the things that are happening in the church. And particularly what I have tried to talk about is this green room culture that isolates the people on the platform from the other staff members and church members, high-level volunteers who are working equally as hard 
mm-hmm. in the church but don't have a place to go and get a snack or take a minute and, and rest. I think about the kids' workers who get there at 7 o'clock in the morning and they're disinfecting toys and they're you know, getting snacks ready and they're getting diapers set out. And they have three services, four sometimes – where yeah. they are taking care of screaming children and they don't get a cheese stick, you know, and a cup of coffee at 10 a.m. And so my point is, is if we're all in this together, if we're all in this kingdom thing together, then we should be in it together, not cheering who gets to have special privileges. And because you're a singer or because you're on a platform that you get more than people that are working just as hard as you. And what happens in those conversations is we uncover idols, We uncover Mm. things that people like, that they prefer. And let's be real. We all want to be special. We all want to feel unique. And I think artists in particular, people that have the gift of speaking, teaching, there is something nice about a green room where you're kind of separate. Um, And I, I feel like in a lot of ways, that's why we see such high turnover in church staff and on volunteer teams is because there's no skin in the game. There's no relationship with the people. There's nobody out in the foyer having the conversation with a single mom or having a cup of coffee with somebody that, you know, just needs somebody on a Sunday morning to welcome them. And so for me, those conversations, they stir up, you know, a little bit of, uh, contention between two camps. And so there are some days that I just have to walk away Mm -hmm. from my social media. Otherwise, I'm going to feel crushed by it all. And when I talk about celebrity culture, when I talk about green rooms, it really frustrates Christians. And I think my question is why? Why is that something that we are holding on to so strongly? It's it's a great question and an interesting conversation. Um, Rachel and I, who are we're leading this little church we planted here in Cleveland, we made a lot of false assumptions when we started. Um, we were making assumptions that a generation was a lot like we were twenty years ago. That if you if you just had opportunity, gave them opportunity, young adults would come and serve. They would come give their gift to the to the Lord. What I didn't realize is there was this culture of everybody gets paid, like to play cello on a Sunday, you get paid at a church, um, to work in kids ministry, you're getting paid. And I think the celebrity culture thing, not even celebrity, but this almost pay for service culture we've created in church is also part of the same conversation that like, if you're going to pay me, I'll come give my gift. But if you're not going to pay me, then I'm probably not going to stay at your church. So they're not, like you mentioned earlier, they're not sitting under shepherds or sitting under celebrities is they don't necessarily sit under a shepherd because they're not connected to that body. Um, I think that's part of the, the struggle we have in our modern church is that everybody's paid. And it, and as soon as I'm paid, I'm a workling and not, not just a sheep among them. I'm, I'm not serving the shepherd. I'm serving my own self-interest. And even though I'm serving the church, um, again, that's my tangent. It's my beef as a pastor here locally, but I think that's part of the problem that we've seen because we almost make everybody a sort of a celebrity who's getting paid. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and the hard part then there is then you have church staff of 50 people now because everybody's getting paid. Some are right. part-time, some are full-time. There's not unity because mm-hmm. you're paying everybody some sort of, whether they're a gigger that plays a guitar on Sunday mornings or you're working 60 hours, there is a discrepancy of pay because 
we pay guitar players more than we pay even some of our own pastors, you know, because guitar players are used to making whatever the situation is. So then you have all of this tension on your church staff of, well, we're at the staff meeting. Where's this guy? And we're Mm -hmm. at the hospital until midnight, but where's this guy? And they're getting paid more than, you know, so there's all of this already now hidden conflict within your staff that the enemy is just reveling in because if you can divide a house from within, then we don't stand a a chance in the world. And so it's why it's so important that when we hire people and when we are interviewing people and when we are teaching our kids about serving the church, that it's not always you're going to get paid for this. It's like my daughter the other day, she drew eight pictures. They were very good pictures. She brings them down to me and says, do you like these? And I said, I do. And she's like, well, you give me a dollar for each of them. And I'm like, Hmm. No, I'm not paying you to draw. Like you're a child. Children draw. Like that's the way I feel about Christians and the church. Like if I show up at the church and I am willing to serve coffee or I'm willing to play my instrument, it's not okay, where's my money? It's no, I'm a I'm a Christ follower. I love the church. Of course, if he's given me this gift, right. I want to offer it. And I know we can't take advantage of people, but there should be more of that, I think, of like, I just am happy to serve. Mm-hmm. And oh, if you happen to give me gas money, I'm happy. Right. Um, which is how I lived my first 15 years of ministry was working two jobs and getting paid gas money <laughs> to go be a worship leader. Listen, if there was if there was an opportunity to preach as a young preacher, I was there. And if they were going to take yes. an offering, amen. And if it was $30, they got me back home. I mean, there was, it was, I didn't have a rider. I didn't have like how many green M&Ms I needed. Like it was like, it, and, and I think it's just maybe a cultural thing. This, and, and I think one of the things I love about Gen Z is this entrepreneurship that they have, but it's bled into the church very much. Um, so I, I think it's something that I'm curious to see as we watch pendulum swings in the church if there's a swing back to the serving just to serve culture. Um, and I don't know what's going to drive that. I mean, it's, it's an interesting point to, to watch and see um, if it happens. So really uh, let's talk about, I want to kind of wrap this up a couple of things. I'll we'll, talk about your new book here in a minute, but really the whole premise of raise to say your little black boxes are having honest conversations about the church. Um, why do you feel like sometimes, especially in the church, we shy away from having difficult and honest conversations? I think it's multi-layered. I think one thing is Christians like to have answers. And True. when we don't have answers, we feel silly. We feel like we're not helping anybody. And so when the hard conversations come, we don't know how to have them because we've been so busy just trying to tell everybody everybody's fine <laughs> that we don't know how to have those conversations. And I say it all the time that Christians don't know how to bear a burden, but we know how to carry an offense. Mm. And I think that for a lot of us, we don't know how to truly sit with people in sorrow. We don't know how to sit with people going through hard things because we're just trying to get to the next thing. And Mm. until the church stops programming everything and stops running a hundred miles an hour, trying to be like the world, like we just talked about, and we focus back on the people, it's going to be really hard for us to slow down long enough to sit in a hard conversation and look at somebody and say, I don't have an answer for you, 
but I just want to sit here and just be a friend. I want to take you to coffee and we'll sit here for five hours if we need to. And I think we've just lost the art of listening. I think we've lost the art of slowing down and, and being what Jesus was, which was sitting in a crowd and just being happy to be among them. And that's what I'm hoping that these conversations are doing in the church. I know there are some churches that don't like raised to stay because they think that I'm divisive because I'm starting to have these hard conversations online and they aren't ready to have them yet. And until the church is ready to have these conversations with their staff and congregations, we're going to continue to have high turnover because people are ready to talk. And if we have older mentors, men and women in our lives who aren't willing sit in the sorrow with us to sit in the hard spaces, we will find somebody who will. And unfortunately, yeah. a lot of times it's not the church. And so I, I'm hoping raised to stay is ruffling feathers enough uh, to make leaders pay attention to, Oh, our people want to talk about these things. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's so true. Um, I, I know, I feel like, especially in the church now, like there's a lot of people who want to have difficult conversations and I don't, I don't know that we know how, I think one of the greatest lessons I learned, it was a, not the, my favorite way to learn it was, uh, when my mother-in-law passed away about five years ago and my father and I, my father-in-law and I were in business together and business sort of stopped and I would go to his house and we would sit until he was ready to talk and then he would share something and maybe cry a little bit as he was dealing with the grief and we would sit some more. And it was one of the most opportune ways to learn about pastoring somebody. And it was like one of the worst ways at the same time. Um, but it taught me that sort of gift of sitting that I, I like to talk. That's why I'm a podcast. That's why I'm a preacher. I want to say things. I'm one of the people you talk about who wants to fix a problem. If you got a problem, I want to bring seven solutions so you can fix it. And it was like the Lord was like, hey, sometimes you just have to be able to be able to listen. And I think there's a gift in listening that the church needs to have right now, because I think there's a lot of people who have some things that are value to say, but they just want to have a conversation. They just want to say some things and ask some difficult questions um, that maybe previous generations weren't allowed to ask. Um, and we have to be willing, I think, in our generation to go, let's ask the questions. Let's let's biblically wrestle out answers, because I think that's where we have to go is biblically wrestle out answers. Um, and help you have some understanding and clarity on it. So, Natalie, you have a new book in the works. We can't announce the title of it yet, but that's still in the works. But can you give us just a glimpse of what this book's going to be about? It's very rare for a first-time author to crank out another book within 15 months of the first book. So it's been a challenge. But I knew that Raise to Stay was going to bring about more questions. And the the book Raise the Stay has done well. You know, we we hit a couple of bestseller lists and that was a gift. But some of the critical feedback, which I'm always open to, was, you know, we were really hoping for more how-to, more uh, strategy and how to stay, how to work through this. So this next book I'm really excited about. It's it's really focused on the book of Acts and what it looks like to rebuild after something that has been deconstructed. And so I'm going to be talking about church culture, talking about the things that make people want to uh, quit before they contend for healthy culture. Um, and mm. we're going to go into the celebrity culture conversation, consumer Christianity, but leave hopeful that the very things that brought the Holy Spirit into that upper room are the very things that can bring revival back into our churches in these last days. Awesome. 
Awesome. I, I know the things you've shared have brought hope to my soul. Um, one, because I feel like there's other people thinking like I think on some conversations. Like it's sometimes you feel alone and then you'll post a little black box and I'm like, Natalie thinks like I think. Thank God there's somebody out there. And then we see some people in the comments who, who also feel that way. So it's good to have sort of community around that. Um, I have one final question as we kind of wrap up the podcast. It is called The Collective's Conversations. Uh, who is one person alive or dead, historical or fiction, that you would love to have a conversation with? I have thought about this a lot because I love history. I love the Bible. I mean, I could give you so I love acting. I could actresses. Um, but, you know, honestly, as I was thinking about it, I I really wish I could sit down with my grandmother on my dad's side, my dad's mom. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the same birthday and we um, didn't get a lot of life together. She passed away when I was a freshman in high school, um, but just a really strong Christian woman who loved the Lord, saw a lot of life. And I think if there was anybody that I could just be with again, it would be her. And I know that's not like fantastical or anything, but I just, the older I'm getting, the more I'm realizing the value of relationship and the people that brought me into the world. And so, yeah, I think it would be my grandmother. That's an awesome, awesome answer. It's always a grandma. I have a grandma that I would love. Actually, both my grandmas have passed, would love to sit down and have one more conversation with them. So uh, the book Raised to Save is out now. You can get that on Amazon. Typically, anywhere else books are sold. But we all buy books from Amazon, let's be honest about it. Um, And Natalie, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and talk to you. And as we always say here, you have a seat at the table. Thanks for being on the Collective's Conversation podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, friends. Thank you for joining us on another incredible episode of the Collective's Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed today's discussion and want to stay connected to the Collective's Conversation, make sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform. If something in the show really spoke to you, tag me on Instagram at Jeff underscore Pitts underscore. It would mean so much if you take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It goes a long way into shaping the future of our episodes and reaching a broader audience. We'll see you next week at the table for another great conversation. And be sure to check our follow-up episode titled Things I Learn every Tuesday following that week's episode. Remember, you have a seat at the table.